Hello, New Horizons. This is Pastor Andy Lovelace, and today's message is a special compilation of teachings by four individuals who are part of the young adults of New Horizons. Every fifth Sunday, we do our Young Adult Sunday, and even though our setting is unique as we find ourselves watching from home, we believe God has something to speak to us through these young men and women of God. You will hear from Hannah Wilson, Jackie LeBaron, John Cook, and Kaylin Searcy. They will share with you about how God desires to bring resurrection to our lives, especially in times where we often only see death or pain. Listen in as God speaks today. to talk to you about hope today and coming before God during difficult times. A lot of changes have happened these past few weeks and changes are happening on a daily basis and the future can feel very uncertain right now. So how do we process that? How do we come to God during these times? Let's take a look at the Psalms this morning. I love that with the Psalms and with a few other books like Job and Lamentation, God included in his word a place where his people were able to express their emotions, express that life wasn't okay at the moment, and come before God with that. Let's take a look at Psalm 130 and how we can come to God during troubling times. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. So I want to point out right there that the the psalmist is really honest with God. He's calling out to God, God, look at me. Pay attention to me. I'm in the depths. I'm in a low place right now. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. He's really honest with God there, isn't he? I think it's so important to start out with honesty with God. Because the people in your life that you're most honest with are the people that you trust. It takes trust to let people know how you're honestly feeling. So for example, um, someone, you, someone you don't know that well, they come up to you and say, hey, how's it going? You could be having the worst day. And you're like, oh, it's great. Life's great. You're like, totally fine right now. But someone you really trust comes along, says, hey, how's, this, how's it going? you're gonna be more honest. You're gonna say, you know, I'm struggling right now. This, this week has been stressful. It takes trust to be in that vulnerable place with someone. It takes, it takes trust to let it all out, your thoughts and your desires and your fears, where you can say, God, I messed up again. Or God, I'm afraid right now and I don't know what to do. Or, God, my family's struggling and it doesn't seem like you care. So when you come before God and you say, this is how I'm feeling right now. I'm in the depths of despair. You're really saying, God, I trust you with this. I trust you with my feelings and I trust that you care about this situation. And then when you're honest with God, he can meet you where you're at rather than where you're pretending to be. So that first step is be honest with God. 
Let's look at verses 3 through 5. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. So the second part I want to point out in this psalm is how the psalmist reminded himself of God's character. He says, if you kept a record of our sins, who could survive but you offer forgiveness? The psalmist is reminding himself of God's character, that God is, is a just God, that he, he's humbling himself before God's power. He's saying, I, I'm not worthy of you. I'm a sinner, but I know that you're gracious and forgiving. He says, you are trustworthy. I have put my hope in your word. I am trusting that you do what you say you're going to do. And we can do the same thing. God, I've messed up again. But I know that you're faithful to forgive. God, things aren't looking great right now. But your word says that, that you are working all things out for the good of those who love you. God, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills right now. But your word tells me not to worry about anything because I am worth more than sparrows that you take care of. And if I'm more valuable than they are, I know that you're going to come through for me. So we can come before God with honesty, and we can come before God reminding of ourselves of his character. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. It says, I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. So after he reminds himself of God's character, the psalmist waits in expectation. He says in verse 6, I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than Watchmen wait for the morning. What's he saying there? So a watchman, if he has a night shift, he's waiting for the morning for his shift to be over. So the psalmist is waiting for the Lord to show up and end his trouble. Just as the watchman knows that morning will come, the psalmist is saying, I know you're going to show up for me. Just as the morning comes every day, I know, Lord, that you are going to show up and be faithful. And that's what hope is. Hope is that feeling of, of optimistic expectation. It's, it's joyful expectation. And God does show up for them. At the end of the psalm, the writer tells Israel to hope in the Lord because God himself would redeem Israel from all their sins. They had to wait, but, but Jesus, God with us, came to earth and saved them from their sins, saved us from our sins. So when you're in those troubling moments, what can you do? When life is overwhelming, you can be honest with God. You can tell him that it's overwhelming. He can handle your honesty. If you're in that relationship with him, you can trust him with those feelings. And then you can remind yourself of his character, of his goodness, of his faithfulness. You can, you can speak scripture over yourself, reminding, your, reminding yourself of that. And then the hardest part, you can wait in expectation. 
wait in expectation for him to show up because he will be faithful to do that. So I want to start out with a quick little quirk about myself. So if you know anything about me, you know that I really, really, really enjoy coffee. So I'm not one of those people that needs coffee every day, but I love the taste of coffee. So if you're ever on a coffee date with me, you can tell if I really like the roast because it'll start with a smile on my face and end with me saying, I can feel my bones singing. So... This story might not make any sense right now, but I promise it fits into my scripture. So the scripture that I was given to study for this message is Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. So before we jump into the scripture, I want to start out by giving you some context of Ezekiel. So one of the first things that you find out in chapter 1 of Ezekiel is that Ezekiel is a prophet among exiles. Not only this, he's one of the first groups taken into exile. So... If you're reading the book of Ezekiel, you'll find him doing all sorts of crazy things. This was a part of his role as a prophet. He was supposed to catch Israel's attention. So despite all the crazy things that Ezekiel does, the Lord promises him that Israel will not listen to him. Their hearts are too hard. I think this says a lot about Ezekiel's character because he still chooses to prophesy to Israel and to the people even though the Lord tells him this. So the Lord shows him how Israel does this by taking him in a vision back to the temple where everyone is worshiping idols from surrounding nations. And then because of this, most of the book of Ezekiel is about prophecies against surrounding nations and against Jerusalem and Judah themselves. So a funny thing here is when I was given this chapter to study, I was actually given Ezekiel 7. And if you're looking for a good fright chapter, read that chapter. <laughs> um, so now we can finally get into Ezekiel 37. So in Ezekiel 36, there's a vision of beauty. And after that vision of beauty, Ezekiel is carried by the Spirit of the Lord into a valley of dry bones. And so the bones are dry because they are dead, dead. It's not like any of the other Old Testament resurrections where they're just freshly dead corpses. These bones are dry because they have been fully decomposed. The bones are all separated. Animals have been eating them. That's how dry they are. So the Lord asks Ezekiel if he thinks that these bones can live. And Ezekiel, knowing who the Lord is, knows that the Lord can surely do that. But he doesn't answer the question with a yes, I think they can live, Lord. He asks the question back to the Lord. And so this is probably Ezekiel questioning him because he's seen the wrath that the Lord has released on Israel. So he's wondering if he will raise the bones. So God then tells Ezekiel to prophesy over the bones. And behold, the bones start coming together, flesh comes on their bodies, but the bones are still not living. So Ezekiel is then told by the Lord to prophesy to the breath. So after he prophesies to the breath, breath comes into these people and they live. And not only do they live, but they stand up and they become an army. Um, God, this two-part creation can also be found in Genesis 2 in the first creation of man. They are first formed and then God's breath brings them to life. 
So God then explains to Ezekiel that those bones are the house of Israel. They are the ones saying that their bones are dry, their hope is lost, and that they are cut off. But the Lord tells Ezekiel to tell his people this in 37, 14. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So this passage, that verse is really, really powerful to me, and it was probably even more powerful to the house of Israel when they received it. So after many years of disobedience, the Lord finally unleashes much-deserved wrath on his people. And in an earlier chapter of Ezekiel, his presence actually leaves the temple. This is why the people are dead. This is why their bones are dry. This is why they are hopeless. They are actually cut off from the Lord's presence. So they're not dead physically, but their spirits are dead. So even though all this happens, the Lord still promises his people life. He promises them life through his spirit. He will bring them back to their land from their exile. He will take them out of exile and they will be his people again. He declares that he will do as he has spoken. So as I've been studying this passage and resurrection itself, I want to remind you of something I find really important. Resurrection isn't just about our bodies being brought back to life. I definitely thought this was the most important part about it. It's about so much more. It's not something we just get to experience when that day comes. As followers of Christ, we get to experience resurrection today. We get to experience resurrection now. Something that Derek says that used to make me really confused is now but not yet. So though we haven't fully experienced resurrection as Christ did, we are experiencing it now. So I can bring you back to coffee making my bones sing. If coffee makes my bones sing, just imagine what Jesus does for me. I remember the first day that I completely accepted Christ as my Lord. I remember weeping uncontrollably and actually feeling all my sins wash away. Feeling like Israel must have felt when the Lord told them that they will live. Knowing that after years of disobedience, I was still loved and I could still experience life through His Spirit. Just as Israel was those dry bones, so were we before we knew Christ. But now we are an exceedingly great army. I want you to remember what God is capable of. I want you to remember what he did for Israel and what he did for us at the cross. What resurrection is actually about. As followers of Christ, we truly have life in the spirit, even in the midst of death. I want to finish by reminding you that our God is good. He is always good. Hey folks, it's John Cook from New Horizons. Super excited to be here with you guys this week. Um, I'm really grateful that uh, we're able to still have ways to connect and be together, even if it's not face-to-face -face, um, through awesome technology and stuff like this. Uh, I know Resonate and the young adults are super excited to be bringing the word to you this morning. Um, I'm going to start reading out of Romans 6, 8 through 11. Romans 8, 6 through 11. All right. For to be kernally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the kernel mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you who are in the flesh, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed in the spirit of God dwells within you. Now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells within you. Now, I really love this passage. Um, Things like this have been really confusing for me in the past. And like, I can definitely get tripped up uh, when it comes to talking about um, like the spiritual world and then the physical. I think it can just get kind of confusing on like what is truth. Um, And for me, it's like really easy. And especially in the past, I've felt this way a lot of times, um, just not knowing a lot about scripture, but it's really easy to decide that through reading this, that the body is just bad and that like we really shouldn't be concerned about it or even think about it, that we should only be thinking about the spiritual and like always be so centered on God that we don't even like have bodies basically. And I really don't think that's what um, the word tells us. And that's definitely not the way Jesus lived. Jesus loved his mortal life and embraced humanity. And to be human is to be an image of God. And that's not a bad thing. Um, I think what it talks about here is uh, another another way, instead of being carnally minded um, or to be spiritually minded, is to have your mind set on something, to be set on the flesh or set on the spirit. Um, and it's way different. If you're only ever thinking of, uh, oh man, like, my leg hurts, it doesn't work right anymore, or, you know, I wonder if I'm still going to have a job, or some of us who lost our jobs already. Those things are are real and difficult and things that, like, need attention, but that's not the only place our mind should be. We should approach all these things through the lens of being focused on God. And when we're abiding in Him and just being with Him constantly, and and it's like, God, will you please heal my knee? Or like, Lord, please provide for me when I lose this job or amongst all this fear, would you just give me peace? And it, and it says to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Um, you approach life through a different lens and it's so much so much better to, to walk through things while we are living in a mortal world. There's no doubt about it. There's no getting around it. Uh, we will all live and we will all die. But we have life here and now, even through pain and suffering and sin that destroys so much, we still get to live full and life-filled lives um, through all this because the Spirit who is in us. And um, this is addressed to the Romans, and he's talking about this whole new shift in their culture when they're starting to become believers and have different communities and things like that. They didn't know how to do it because no one did because Jesus had just died and done this. Um, amazing gift for us. And I, I really, really love that um, in verse 9 it goes on to say, but you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells within you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And this really just sets up our identity in Christ, that he says if you've accepted God into your heart and want him to be there, that he will be there. And that is your new identity. You are no longer just your name or your parents' children. You are then a child of Christ with a new inheritance in a new kingdom, in a new family. And I think that's amazing. Um, One part that was kind of difficult for me um, is where it says, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And I was kind of thinking about that and what that means. Um, And it is kind of distorted my view for a moment where I was just thinking like, God is just unhappy and uh, unsatisfied with a bunch of people and anyone who's not a Christian 
is just like an enemy of God. And that's really not the case. Like God is love. And whether you've accepted him in your heart or have just for the first time watching an online church service, he loves you and he wants you to be in his family. And there's nothing that he wouldn't do to to get to you and to be there for you. And God is love. But the important piece is that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and broke chains and delivered all the Israelites out of Egypt and raised the dead and healed the sick and gave life to the poor is the same spirit that dwells within you. And he can do so much and more through us and in our lives. He loves you and he wants you to have life and peace. So I'm just speaking life and peace over our congregation this week as you go out um, or stay in. Please try to be safe and just know that the Spirit of God dwells within you and that He loves you and wants you to be there. So my passage is John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Um, it's the story of Lazarus's death and resurrection by Jesus. Um, I don't have time to read the whole story, but I'm going to focus on um, verses 17 through 27. It's a piece of dialogue that happens between Martha and Jesus before Lazarus's resurrection. Um, Starting in verse 17, um, Jesus comes to Bethany. Now, Bethany was only about two miles or so from Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem were the Judeans. The Judeans did not like Jesus very much. They wanted to kill him, frankly. So it was a big risk for Jesus to come all the way to Bethany to see Mary and Martha um, because of how many of them were there. And because it was so close, the Jews were already there with Mary and Martha grieving with them because of their brother. Now, when Jesus walks up to the house, um, Martha runs out to greet him. Now, this is kind of a flop and characteristic that we see from Mary and Martha because Mary stays inside the house. Um, Previously, we had seen Mary and Martha when Jesus had come to their house before Lazarus' death. And um, Martha was running around, making food, trying to serve all the people in her home. And Mary was sitting at the foot of Jesus, and Martha asked Jesus, will you please tell her to help me? And he told her that she has chosen correctly, she has chosen the life, and it won't be taken from her. So the fact that Martha was the one to run out to Jesus shows the change in her understanding that she saw from that encounter alone. And um, when she runs out to meet him, starting in verse 21, she directly addresses him, Lord, who he is. And she says to him, if you had been with us, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that whatever you ask God, he will give to you. Now, when she says this, she's not saying, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She's not blaming him. She's recognizing his authority and power over death, um, which was a pretty big deal. That was the reason the Judeans didn't like him, because he was the son of God and he was saying so and they didn't believe him. They um, thought he was speaking heresy. And so the fact that she recognizes that um, is a pretty big deal. And she reaffirms that with the second thing she says, "Um, I know that whatever you ask God, he will give to you. Um, She's not necessarily asking for Jesus to raise 
her brother from the dead. All she's doing is recognizing his power and authority and sharing with him um, her saddened heart for the death of her brother. In verse 23, he responds to her and says, your brother's not going to remain dead. He'll live again. She takes this um, in verse 24 with her reply. She says, yeah, I know. He'll, he'll rise again in the resurrection in the last day. The capital R resurrection. She knows in the future, Lazarus isn't truly dead. You said well, you'll rise everybody from the dead again when God comes back and sets the earth right. So that's what she's referring to. But that's not what Jesus is referring to. And so he says to her, no, 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 no. I am the resurrector. I am the life giver. He's, he's not going to stay dead forever. Um, he, he talks about in verse 25, those who follow me and obey me will be given life, even if their mortal bodies die on earth. So he's, he's truly telling her what it means for him to be the resurrector and the life. And he asks her, do you actually believe this? she's, he's, he's asking her, do you personally believe it? Do you believe it? Not just because everybody around you believes it, not because I've told you, but do you personally believe this? Do you believe that I am who you say I am? And Martha in verse 27 directly addresses him again. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are who you say you are. You're the Christ. You are the son of God and you are here to save us all. So she has fully taken and told him, I personally believe that you will raise my brother from the dead. I personally believe that you are the son of God. I personally believe you are who you say you are. Her response to what he's saying to her is entirely different than we see in most other stories throughout the Bible. My favorite one um, to go back to is actually Exodus. I got the opportunity to do a deep study of Exodus last semester and reading the story of when the Israelites are in Egypt and then they get liberated and they go in the desert and they just whine and complain and whine and complain. Oh, it would have been so much better if we were just slaves. And it kind of makes me laugh. Like, you guys are such whiners, <laughs> such whiners. Why would you not believe that God will liberate you? Well, I know the end of the story. I know what's happened in the last millennia too. God has come. God has delivered. God has over and over again answered the prayers of Israel. But if we put ourselves in that moment, Israel was in Egypt for 400 years in slavery. And then they were in the desert for 40 years with no virtual sight of the promised land. So if I, if I would have been in that instance, in, in the middle of the story, not knowing the end, I might have whined too. And this is really applicable to where we're currently at. All around us, there is death and destruction and there is fear right now in this time. And it's we don't know the end of the story. So it's easy to blame God. It's easy to get upset. And it's easy to have a response similar to what Israel has had this whole time to most other stories that we see. But how do we get to, from, from the response that Israel had in Exodus and through most of the Old Testament, to what Martha responded to Jesus? How do we get there? We have to be able to personally accept and believe and live the resurrection that he gave us to 
to walk faithfully and confidently with reckless abandon. Yes, I fully believe that Jesus is the resurrector and he is the life giver and there is nothing that will separate that. And that's when we start to be able to, in, in the midst of fear, live in peace and in confidence when we fully feel the peace of God. <laughs>